Hello and welcome to the Together for the Common Good podcast channel. My name is Jenny Sinclair, and this is a podcast where we explore what the common good means in practice and how it can help us work towards civic and spiritual renewal. I'm the founder and director of the UK Christian charity Together for the Common Good. In this series, we're showcasing a set of nine lectures bringing alive what the common good means in terms of responsibility, political participation and civic life, human freedom, economy, the dignity of work, people and planet, and social peace. In this fourth episode, the fourth lecture in the series is given by Malcolm Brown, who is the Director of Public Affairs at the Church of England and a theologian. He uses Catholic social teaching as a backdrop to explore the Anglican legacy of social theology, to identify how the Church of England might be helpful in this moment of cultural crisis. He thinks the Anglican spirit of being hospitable to extreme degrees of difference could resource the Church to be an antidote to division. He proposes a revisiting of the values of the Elizabethan settlement, which places the emphasis on neighbourliness rather than on doctrine. Fundamentally, Malcolm is challenging the Church of England to become a church for England at a time of great division and instability, and he sees the parish as a way to hold fractious communities together. I hope you enjoy what Malcolm has to say in this lecture called Just Church, How Does Catholic Social Teaching Fit into the Mission of the Church of England? Malcolm Brown. Well, thank you, Paul, for that introduction, and thank you for braving the evening to come out tonight. In the first two um, lectures in this series, both Jenny Sinclair and Maurice Glassman quoted Pope Francis's comments that we're not living through an era of change so much as the change of an era. If that point needed to be rammed home, at least for this country, the death of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth and the inauguration of the reign of King Charles III in the same week that we gained a new Prime Minister and administration makes the point rather explicit. Most of us, I think, are still absorbing the implications of what must be the most significant change in our consciousness of ourselves as a nation that most of us have ever experienced. Both Jenny and Morris spoke in depth about Catholic social teaching, as uh, Paul has just explained. I'll abbreviate it, if you don't mind, to CST, which is a bit crude, but just saves a few syllables. CST does have something of a vogue at present, not least in political life, and not just among Catholics, as Morris himself, who's a practicing Jew, uh, exemplifies. Now, I'm not an expert on Catholic social teaching. If you want to go into it in depth, I would recommend a recent book by Professor Anna Rowlands from Durham, who I think is probably the leading UK exponent of Catholic social teaching. My purpose this evening is to explore how the social trends that are encouraging people to engage with Catholic social teaching might connect with the rather looser and less well-defined Anglican tradition of social thought. I havered for a moment there over whether I should have said Anglican traditions in the plural. 
and I will say a bit more later about the plural nature of Anglicanism, how hard it is to pin down at times, and what that in itself has, I believe, to offer to our society and our culture. Now, please be clear that I'm not offering an Anglican tradition of social theology as a kind of rival or alternative to CST, to Catholic teaching. In a chapter of a book I edited, which Paul mentioned, Anglican Social Theology, Anna Rowlands, who I've mentioned, contributed a chapter. And she described Catholic social teaching and Anglican social theology as fraternal traditions, traditions with commonalities and differences, yet recognizably, I think, members of the same family. By calling them fraternal traditions, however, she had an explicit double meaning in mind. As she pointed out, over the centuries, over the decades, both the Catholics and the Anglicans have mostly thought about society among the thinking of men. Anna is something of a feminist. Um, I think she herself gives the lie to that in that uh, she probably is the most articulate and uh, uh, academically uh, advanced thinker on Catholic social theology we have now. But it is a point worth making that who does theology matters. And sometimes it's not always done by uh, a wide enough range of people to bring different insights and understandings. I'll leave that point unanswered because, of course, I don't pass the gender plurality test either. Just as you don't have to be a Roman Catholic to appreciate and learn from and participate in Catholic social teaching, so the Anglican approach to social theology is, just like the Church of England itself, not a rigidly defined approach accessible only to paid-up Anglicans. And here I'm talking very much about the Church of England, recognizing, of course, that Anglicanism is a global communion and that most Anglicans today are not English or British. And yet the Church of England retains a unique place in the Anglican communion and the Anglican consciousness. And it's this link between the Church of England and Englishness that I want to make the context for discussing social theology tonight. Until now, possibly even now, reflection on the nature of being English has been the missing component in questions about the constitution of our nation, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the future of the Union, and indeed the question, many of the big questions that King Charles III will now have to face. So how can we map a tradition of Anglican social theology. Theological traditions just don't coincide very precisely with denominational boundaries. And as you might expect, there are borrowings between traditions. Catholic social teaching is somewhere in there in the Anglican approach to social questions. Witness the centrality of the common good. Paul um, gave some of the history of it in recent uh, work of the Archbishop's Council, but also in our liturgies, in our prayers of intercession, ever since the prayer book began to be revised, the common good has had a prominent role when we pray for the world. And it's there 
in a kind of parallel tradition in American Protestant churches too, often known as the social gospel. Often among American evangelicals, that's a term used as a term of abuse, but it is actually an honorable tradition of theological thought that really in America took off with the Civil War, when American Christians, American Protestants had to recognize that their way of understanding the world in the light of the gospel had not prevented one of the worst carnages of history for that country. Now, most churches in most eras have tried to make theological sense of the culture and the politics around them and to work out how being a Christian and being a citizen play out together. That's what I mean by social theology. If we believe, as I think most Christians do, that our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ touches every aspect of our lives, then the way we respond to events around us should be a dialogue between our Christian faith and the facts and the evidence that the world puts in our way. And so it's common to, I think, most Christian traditions, except the most obscure, to engage at some level with the society and cultures in which we're set. But Anglicanism does, I think, display some important characteristics of its own when it engages theologically with English culture, society, and political life. And in some ways, we've exported some of that to the other provinces of the communion. I believe this theological tradition emerged from the experience of the English people. And of course, that's not entirely unique because uh, we have always been part of a global culture in some ways. But because of that explicit English history, Anglican theology has a particular capacity to speak into some of the problems, the dilemmas, and the divisions which face our country today. And that is the theme of my lecture tonight. One sense in which Pope Francis is absolutely right to talk of a shift into a new era is that the mechanisms by which successive generations tried to develop ways of dealing with human differences, those mechanisms appear to be breaking down. If one mark of a civilized society is that we try to res resolve problems of difference, disagreement, scarcity, conflict, if we try to resolve these differences through negotiation rather than violence, then the bulwarks around our civilization appear to be have become somewhat flimsy. And of course, this is happening in other parts of the world too. And in each country, it's being played out in its own particular idiom. So while we watch the fracturing of American democracy with a sort of terrified fascination, it's also possible to see something comparable happening here, but in a distinctively English, rather understated way. I was working on this lecture on the day that the then-Chancellor uh, issued his now-notorious mini-budget. And I felt at the time, and still feel, that the detailed policies were less interesting and less significant than his refusal 
to release the scrutiny of his figures by the Office for Budget Responsibility. Policies can be, and in this case, nearly all have been already, reversed. The abandoning of established checks and balances, indeed, the abandoning of the idea that one makes policy on the basis of evidence, will be much harder to reverse because it creates a precedent for politicians of any party to escape scrutiny. But in our English way, we erode our delicate checks and balances by stealth and by negligence, without banners and baseball caps. Now, it seems to me at this juncture, important to remember that the Church of England, in something like its current form, emerged from a period of history when people had been prepared to kill one another because their religious and political beliefs clashed. Although popular history suggests that the Church of England began with Henry VIII's marital problems, Henry's breach with Rome set off a period of extreme division and instability. It was under the first Queen Elizabeth that a religious settlement began to emerge in which the Church of England embraced those who, on the one hand, believed in retaining some continuities with the Church of Rome, and on the other, those whose faith was formed rather more explicitly by the Reformation theologians. What mattered under the Elizabethan settlement was place. And it's significant, of course, that that was a period of history when the nation-state began to emerge as a global unit, a global power. This was the Church of England, defined by place. The Church of the Nation, not a church defined by a particular doctrine or the teachings of a particular guru. The nation gave the Church of England its provincial boundary. The parish gave the church its character. You worshipped with your neighbour, even if you suspected him of believing something rather unlike your own beliefs, because frankly, it was better than burning him or him burning you. And of course, it took a long time to settle down. And when Charles I destabilized the delicate balance, new divisions with a very strong religious element led to civil war. But that in time gave way to a new settlement, a greater accommodation of religious plurality in the Toleration Act of 1689. The English had once again rejected killing one another on religious grounds. Place or geography had held Christians together through a period of extreme turbulence as the church in the West fragmented following the Reformation. Being the Church of England, the church for all the people of the nation, is inextricable from the parish system, which guarantees that every citizen has a parish church and the ministry of clergy if they wish to avail themselves of it. The experience of living out one's faith becomes essentially a local one, grounded among one's neighbours and bound together by proximity. Now, of course, over the years, that model has frayed at the edges. As people became more mobile, so the tendency grew to worship with those one agreed with rather than with one's neighbour. 
Greater mobility coincided with the growth of a dominant consumer culture. So it's not surprising that many Anglicans nowadays travel out of their parishes, often quite a long way, to worship with those who worship the way they like and say the things and believe the things they agree with, rather than sticking among those whom they live amongst. But yet the parish system has proved remarkably resilient. And as our culture starts to regret the extreme atomization and individualism that has ripped so many of our social institutions apart, we can see how the geographical structure of the Church of England and the idea of the parish as a way to hold fractious communities together at some level has immense potential for an even more plural, divided and anxious future. One of the slogans that the Church of England sometimes uses about itself, reflecting its history, reflecting the Elizabethan settlement, is that we are simultaneously Catholic and Reformed. Many of our Catholic and Reformed uh, ecumenical colleagues wonder quite how you can hold those two together. But the Church of England holds together contradictions on a grand scale. One could dwell for a long time on what Catholic and Reformed actually means, but my key point is that the Catholic approach to social teaching is part of our inherited tradition, although we haven't engaged with it perhaps in its modern form as if it were ours. But many major concepts from CST, like the common good, subsidiarity, and so on, are part of Anglicanism's inheritance too, shared with the Roman Catholic Church. But we also bring in, firstly, perspectives from the Reformed Christian traditions, and secondly, centuries of experience of holding diverse traditions in tension. And that's where I want to focus, because the Anglican way of holding differences in tension is, I believe, theologically justifiable, integral to our ecclesiology, and most importantly, a model that could say much to a culture that seems hell-bent on tearing itself apart. How then has the Church of England used this inheritance in its social engagement and social theology? To give a full genealogy of Anglican social thought would take a lecture series, um, not specifically Anglican, but there is a very good book on this called um, Social Christianity by the late John Atherton, um, and that covers the American tradition as well. But if we look simply at the last hundred years, there are, I think, two seminal texts that came out of the Church of England that have had a huge impact, or had a huge impact, on the culture they were issued into. These are, first, Archbishop William Temple's well-known work, Christianity and Social Order, published in 1942 as a very thin penguin on very cheap wartime paper, which went on to sell tens of thousands, I think even hundreds of thousands of copies. And secondly, the report of the Archbishop's Commission on Urban Priority Areas from 1985, better known by its title, Faith in the City. Now, the significance of these two publications can be crudely measured by 
the number of times bishops say to me and to others, what we need is another faith in the city, or we should write something like Temple wrote. But for today, even though, of course, the context of today is not that of 1942 or even 1985, yet those are two occasions in the 20th century when the Church of England made a significant impact on the way the country thought about itself and the way the country thought about the church. Both of them came out of moments of crisis and deep anxiety about the future. When Temple was writing at the very beginning of the 1940s, the tide of the war had not yet turned in the Allies' favour. Yet Temple's little treatise, starting with the argument for why the church had the right to comment on political and social affairs, appealed to masses of people. It really took off. It represented an immense act of faith by addressing the question, what sort of a country do we want to be when this war is over? Bearing in mind that question was being asked when it was very unclear whether the end of the war would mean the triumph of Nazism or the triumph of democracy. Having outlined a set of principles based on Christian theology, Temple added an appendix, which set out a series of aims for post-war recon uh, reconstruction. And that set of aims formed, in its way, a template for the Beveridge Report of the same year, of 1942, which created the programme which the, which the Attlee government of 1945 implemented as the beginnings of our welfare state. Importantly, Temple put these aims into an appendix. He was very clear that his role as a churchman was to lay out principles drawn from theology and scripture. How those principles were turned into practice was, he recognised, to a great extent beyond his remit. He could suggest, but could not dictate. When the church spoke, it should find a balance, he felt, between banal platitudes on the one hand, and we are quite good at that, you know, people should love each other a bit more, and on the other hand, so much detail that we are in effect giving God's mandate to our manifesto. If, for instance, you go into detail about the precise level of income tax, are you really saying that God has done the sums? Are you really saying also, of course, that God wills the downside of any real policy because every policy has unintended consequences? So the church's voice must strike that middle note between banality and excessive detail. This is an approach that became known as middle axioms, although Temple never used the term, and it informed the Church of England's engagement with social issues for many decades, right through, I think, until the 80s and beyond. It is in some ways our own expression of social teaching along the lines of Catholic social teaching, but adapted for a church that is deeply pluralistic, doctrinally, politically, and in terms of the way we express our beliefs, in a way that, frankly, the Roman Catholic Church is not quite like that. 
This approach establishes broad principles from Christian theology, but leaves a lot of room for variation in how those principles are applied. It recognizes that the church is not a supreme arbiter of policy, which sits in judgment over governments, nor is it a body that holds within itself the sum total of human wisdom. In particular, Temple's approach recognizes the authority of specialist knowledge as diverse disciplines have developed in the modern age. And so, where Temple's text touched on questions of economics, he worked with Maynard Keynes to draw on the wisdom of secular economists, recognizing that Christian theology gave him as an archbishop no special locus from which to opine about the economy. Temple's methodology was to convene gatherings of experts in many fields to discuss together the questions of the day. He did this formally in a number of very big and apparently successful conferences like the Malvern Conference of 1941, and he did it informally through his own networks of friendship with people like Tawney and Beveridge and Keynes, and indeed people in the arts like T.S. Eliot and Dorothy L. Sayers. The place of theology was to be one partner in a wide-ranging multidisciplinary conversation, not to be the dominant voice. Now, that's a wonderful ideal, and occasionally it even happens. But it's not perhaps such a great surprise that over the years, the theological voice around the table became somewhat timid. Other disciplines like economics, the natural sciences, political theory, and so on, had a confidence in the later 20th century that Christian theology rather lacked. The result, as time went on, was epitomized in the rather apologetic theological appendix attached to various church reports on social issues. We have quite a library of them in my office at Church House. The bulk of the report was a kind of um, dialogue between a Guardian and a Daily Mail editorial about the issue in question, and then there was a bit of theology tacked on to show that it came from the church. The connection was not always easy to make. But at its best, Temple's approach, which is still practiced by the Church of England, was what one might call evidence-based ethics. I'll interpose a little anecdote here. Um, some time ago, uh, there was an issue in Parliament on a technical medical ethical question called mitochondrial replacement therapy. And the Catholic Church opposed this on the grounds that we shouldn't even get into it. The Church of England opposed it on the grounds that we didn't believe the safeguards were adequate. And the press reported it as if the two churches were both being obscurantist. And a friend of mine who's a, a big noise in the Royal Society, a, a well-known scientist and a Christian, um, wrote to me and said, what on earth is the Church of England doing opposing this? So I sent him the papers that my team had put together on the ethics of mitochondrial replacement therapy. And he emailed me straight back and he said, my goodness, I had no idea the Church of England arrived at its moral conclusions after such a rigorous engagement with the evidence. I wanted that in lights over church house. Evidence-based ethics. But it's not just the evidence of the secular disciplines. It's what does that evidence look like 
when you scrutinize it through the prism of the faith in God, in Jesus Christ. And you can see something of that approach in Faith in the City from 1985. This report was occasioned by the urban riots in Brixton, Toxteth and elsewhere, as the policies of the Thatcher government cut deep into the lives of some of the poorest communities, not least those of ethnic minorities. Clergy in those areas, faced with the utter immiseration of the people, persuaded Archbishop Robert Runcie of the seriousness of the situation in inner cities, and the result was a commission, very much on the model of a royal commission, where a team of the great and good, and I don't mean that entirely pejoratively, there were some very good minds on that commission, they toured the trouble spots to meet the people, analyze the issues, and report back on what the church should do and what the government should do. And it's worth remembering that Faith in the City had more recommendations for the Church of England than it did for the government of the day. Now, the theological chapter of Faith in the City, however, was very poorly integrated with the rest of the report. And yet, it was that theological chapter that was probably one cause of the report's success. Because whoever wrote the theology was much enamored of Latin American liberation theology. And that provided the Tory government of the day with an attack line that this report was pure Marxist theology, which it certainly wasn't, um, but which gave the media, of course, a field day. And that ensured, I think, the report's notoriety and greatly enhanced its sales. But looking back over 35 years, faith in the city comes across as rather limp. It seemed to work on the assumption that the terrible state of the inner cities had happened because the government was unaware of the impact of its policies. The idea that Thatcherism might see itself as a moral program rather than just an economic one seemed to pass the commission by. It took a lot of work by someone who's now a Labour peer, uh, Professor Raymond Plant, to try to persuade the church to engage with Thatcherism at a moral level, not just a pragmatic one. And that, I think, was the great missed opportunity of faith in the city. But both Temple and the Archbishop's Commission on Inner Cities were in different ways associated with the two administrations since the war which have utterly changed the way British people understand themselves and their society and their politics. Attlee's administration of 1945, which founded the NHS and the welfare state, and Thatcher's administration of 1979, which upended the post-war consensus and taught us that you can't have everything you want to make a lovely society until you know how it's going to be paid for. And of course, she taught us a great deal more than that, but that's enough to be going on with. And we still live with the ideologies of those two administrations. And the political debate in this country has hardly shifted from an argument between an Attlee and a Thatcher. Temple and his book helped shape the thinking behind and the public mood around the Attlee government's program. Faith in the city inadvertently but possibly accurately, set the Church of England up as a significant focus 
for the arguments against the impact of Thatcherism. So the church made an impact at two of the most salient moments in our national story since the war, but in very different ways. And in both cases, the approach was one of setting down fundamental principles informed by Christian theology, and then working outwards from principles to practice. Both those documents drew extensively on expertise from other disciplines. Both risked theology becoming overshadowed in the process. But if one measure of Christian social engagement is that we make a difference to the way people think, a kind of public apologetics, then both Temple and Faith in the City were hugely successful. But our problem now is that people often want success to be reproducible in other times and other contexts. Temple's assumptions about the equal role of theology around the table with other disciplines is harder to justify today in a much more predominantly secular narrative about academic knowledge. Nor is the nation experiencing a wave of consensual purpose as it was in wartime. The 1980s were a time of deep social division, but the individualism of Thatcherism, of Thatcherite philosophy, hadn't yet become the common cultural assumption that it's become today. Faith in the city could draw on a deep unease at the breakdown of consensus, which has been overtaken now by social and cultural fragmentation on a scale we never imagined back then. Now, this is where I think the Anglican inheritance matters. The Church of England may claim to be Catholic and Reformed, but it never sought to reconcile those traditions into a single way of being and a single way of believing. At its best, Anglicanism has allowed the best of those traditions, and indeed the best of the more recent liberal tradition, to moderate and deepen each other. At different times in our life as a church, one or other tradition has been in the ascendant. The evangelical revival of the late 19th century, the Oxford movement, the burgeoning of liberal theology after the war, and its eclipse by a new form of evangelicalism. But we've never sought as a church to close the question and become a church of one tradition only with all the others excluded. Now that's not to say that there are not many Anglicans who would really quite welcome such a monochrome church. And the way our current internal debates about human sexuality are playing out demonstrate how different viewpoints have, at the extremes, tried to define their opponents in terms of unforgivable heresy. Even though to polarize the church in that way and expel those we profoundly disagree with would undermine the whole Anglican settlement that has endured for so long since the first Queen Elizabeth. The question for the Church of England today, I think, is whether that trend towards polarization is deepening as part of a wider cultural shift into so-called culture wars, or whether the foundations of the Elizabethan settlement emphasizing neighborliness rather than doctrine as the factor binding us together 
whether that is strong enough, not only to save the church, but to inform the way our society approaches strongly held differences. Where temple and faith in the city assumed the existence of consensus, one to celebrate it and one to lament its erosion, our crying need now is to recover the simple basics that bind people and communities together in a common endeavor. That means, I believe, recovering the Anglican spirit that sought not to vanquish, but to be hospitable to extreme degrees of difference. It means understanding how that was possible because the binding factor was the nation and the parish, the space we occupy together, the space in which we find our immediate neighbors. And it means recognizing that the discomforts of difference are best approached not by constantly seeking victory over others, but by accepting that each tradition sheds a unique light on the nature of a God who is ineffably greater than our imaginations can comprehend. So to give just one example, evangelical theology stresses the distinctiveness of Christian ethics from those of the world. Christians shouldn't be afraid to stand out or to be unpopular if they're living the truth as revealed in Scripture. The liberal Christian tradition, in another way, helps to balance that by stressing that God is in the world before us, what Wesley called the prevenient grace of God. And we make an error if we believe that we alone carry the presence of the Holy Spirit into the secular realm. Rather, the works of the Spirit are for us to discern, often in unlikely and unchurchy places. Evangelicals stress the individual in his or her relationship to Christ, and that's a basic gospel truth. Catholic Anglicans stress the way in which we become human only in relationships with our neighbors, including the unseen others. And that too is a basic gospel truth. One could go on. Each is of course right in that each points to a truth about God, about God in Christ, and a truth about our relationship to God. And at its best, and I keep harking back to that phrase, at its best, Anglicanism has recognized the need for the church to hold together these truths, which are so difficult to practice simultaneously, but they're no less true for that. As John Atherton, the Anglican theologian, pointed out, the Church of England has swung through the last century or so from stressing a theology of atonement, the need to call people out of the world to salvation through the life of the faithful in the church, and then swung to what he called a theology of incarnation, stressing the presence of the holy in the everyday, and therefore the importance of our discipleship in our daily lives and jobs. Both atonement and incarnation are central Christian doctrines. And to emphasize one to the exclusion of the other is to get theology seriously wrong. But practicing them equally is jolly difficult. Anglicanism holds different emphases together through its distinct internal traditions, sometimes referred to as tribes. And it's in trying to get along with each other 
in this exasperating coalition that is the Anglican Church that we discover more that is true about God than if we were sealed in our own tribe and its own doctrines. And I want to add one more dimension, which may be peculiar to Anglicanism as it has evolved over the centuries and which it shares, though in a different form, with Roman Catholicism. And that is the fact that we are both a very local church and a global church. Perhaps more local in some ways than Roman Catholicism in that our focus on the nation and on geography often transcends our internationalism. But we can't ignore the fact that the global Anglican communion makes the Church of England look very small indeed. And this has profound consequences for the, for instance, the current tensions about sexuality. If one were to take a poll of the Church of England, I strongly suspect there would be a majority, although how big I don't know, in favor of same-sex marriage. But take that poll across the communion and a very different answer is likely. And that's why this ethical question is not one that can be resolved by a simple ballot, because we don't know who the electorate are. Yet who would argue that we are wrong to try to balance the local and the global, despite the intense pastoral and theological difficulty of doing that? My point here isn't one about sexuality at all, but about the tension between localism and internationalism. Maurice Glassman's lecture touched on Brexit. There have been some, in my view, irresponsible pieces of academic work, which suggested that the bishops of the Church of England supported Remain, while the people in the pews supported Leave. It was, I think, poor work, because the definition of a church member was anyone who self-identified as Anglican or Church of England. And that's a useful category if it's used correctly, but it doesn't correlate very well with those who regularly attend and with whom you might have expected the leadership to be more in tune. And as for the bishops, our own research, which included confidential conversations with many of them, revealed the voting intentions in the referendum of probably 12 out of well over 100 bishops. Of that dozen, I think only two said they voted leave, but that doesn't mean that the whole Anglican establishment were Remainers. The 90 or so who preferred not to say, preferred not to say because I think they regarded it as not a fundamental theological question at all, because precisely the Church of England is both local and global, and how you emphasize the one over the other in terms of a crude referendum was not entirely clear at all. And most of them found that their dioceses were divided, um, that the cities were remain while the countryside was leave in many cases. And I don't think many of the bishops saw any real point in opining on a subject where the outcomes were uncertain and the people were divided. So all this research about an out-of-touch leadership strikes me as a bit of stirring the pot. But it does show how our local and our global nature throws up interesting and often unresolvable questions. And once again, it's this both-and aspect of Anglicanism which is in play. We believe, do we not, 
in a universal gospel for every human being. We are global Christians for whom our citizenship with others in heaven plays out in our being citizens of the world. But to use someone else's not very helpful binary distinction, that doesn't make us citizens of nowhere. For we're deeply committed to the nation and most of all to the parish, to the neighbours among whom we live out our lives and our faith. One of the most influential books on spirituality, which I read a long time ago as an ordinand, was Harry Williams's book, Tensions, which captured at a spiritual level precisely this both-and aspect of Christian faith, which I'm suggesting Anglicanism handles exceptionally well. Fundamentally, of course, both-and is a key motif in Christian theology. Jesus is both God and man, not one or the other. Salvation is both now and not yet. The kingdom of God is among us and yet still over the horizon of the parousia. We live with the gift of the Holy Spirit, but until the end of all things, sin persists in and around us. This isn't some wishy-washy, middle-of-the-road aberration. This is what it means to pursue a faith in a God who is bigger than we can imagine and who is working his purpose out, as the hymn has it, as year succeeds to year. So where might that leave us in terms of social theology and the Church of England? In 2015, the bishops wrote a long pastoral letter for the general election of that year. They were able to do that because it was one general election where we knew the date a long way in advance and could do some planning. As they wrote, there is a desperate need for a fresh political vision which seeks to be a corrective to the weaknesses of the Attlee and Thatcher administrations on the one and on the other hand and the damage that sticking with that sterile binary has done to our relationships. Picking up a theme from some of the previous lectures in this series, this must mean addressing the way that both state socialism and market capitalism have eroded the bonds between human beings. It's worth remembering that alongside his famous report on social security, William Beveridge wrote a second report, which is much less well-known, called Voluntary Action. Beveridge understood, as perhaps many politicians of the left do not, although I certainly exempt Maurice Glassman from that stricture, he understood that a welfare state will always fall short of the capacity to address human ills and suffering if the state alone is responsible for people's well-being. Strong local bonds, neighbourliness, intermediate associations which are much smaller than the state but bigger than the family are essential if state welfare is not to be swamped by human need. Beveridge saw that such informal voluntary provision couldn't be taken for granted but had to be deliberately nurtured and celebrated and sustained, which isn't to say that voluntary provision on its own without state support could deliver either. All three of our main political parties today ultimately draw their thinking from the same intellectual well, 
that of individualistic and rather atomized liberalism. Morris spoke eloquently of the failures of that philosophical tradition and why it cannot cut it for today's challenges. We urgently need a new polity which starts from the centrality of communities and neighborhoods as the contexts in which people flourish and learn to be good human beings. Catholic and Anglican social thought has much to say in the creation and the shaping of such a polity, including the important task of reframing questions so that they are not simple, sterile, and unhelpful binaries. So to speak, I agree with the Daily Mail or I agree with the Guardian. Rowan Williams was a past master at that, of reframing the question so that it became a different sort of question. He cut through in a very important article, I think in the Sunday Times, on the, <laughs> excuse me, on the abortion debate, <laughs> excuse me, by saying, how would these questions look if we started from the point that every abortion is a tragedy? That was one of the most brilliant reframings of a question that I've ever heard. An important Christian insight is that when you are most certain you are right, you are most certain to be wrong in some respect. We should beware of identifying an enemy and believing that if only that enemy could be overcome, all would be well. There is, not least within the Anglican social theological tradition, a liberal strand which also contributes significant Christian insights to our task of living ethically in a fallen world. It reminds us, most of all, that each one of us is loved by God and therefore equal before God. It reminds us that the local and the familial is not the last word about our relationships, but that we are global people too. Human sin persists this side of the eschaton, and for all that people need strong community bonds in order to flourish, communities can become toxic, suspicious and intolerant of the stranger or the dissident or the person who does anything differently to how we do it. Whatever the failings of liberalism as the dominant ideology of this country, we shouldn't lightly abandon its insights when they are a corrective to the weaknesses of other traditions, when they forget that human ideas are always contingent and always fall short of God's vision for us. And although most secularists might well be ideological liberals, it doesn't follow that all liberals are necessarily sec secularists. But I don't doubt that at this juncture in our history, the touch on the tiller needs to be in the direction of a new communitarianism. I'm with Morris on that. And I very gently want to suggest that it's the ability of Anglican social theology to stay in touch with the liberal Christian tradition as well as its Catholic and its evangelical traditions that might give it a real capacity to inform a new political settlement for today's Britain. I don't want to sound hubristic. I maintain with Anna Rowlands that CST and AST, as you might call them, are fraternal traditions and that our world and our culture would be much enhanced if more notice was taken of these ethical traditions. But I'm not pessimistic either. Although in the short term, 
I believe our nation faces a crisis that is, is, is as much existential as economic. We're in danger of losing the virtue of holding together warring traditions in ways that seek to engender mutual respect. But I take heart from two things. One is the fact that I think the antipathy to religion that seemed to be in the ascendancy a few years ago is shifting to something more subtle in our wider culture. To give a personal example, in 2007, I was on a panel at the Natural History Museum discussing whether science and religion could coexist. It was a big audience, mostly of young people, and they all ignored anything I had to say because they wanted to attack the scientist, a splendid man from the Natural History Museum who was a specialist in weevils. But he gave the most brilliant account of scientific method that I've ever heard. And they went for him saying, why have you not got the courage of your convictions to say that science has disproved all religion? To which he said, didn't you listen to a word I said, in a sense? But it was a pure Richard Dawkins response. And that audience was not to be placated. But some years later, I was on another panel, this time at Imperial College, discussing the ethics of artificial intelligence. I made some basic points about Christian ethics and what that might contribute. And an even bigger audience, mainly of students, came back again and again, wanting to hear more. There was a lovely blog on the event, incidentally, which said some of the most interesting ideas of the evening came from the Church of England's Brown. And my colleagues said, the Church of England's Brown what? But uh, as a direct result of, of friendships made on that panel, I now teach every year at Bath University basic ethics for PhD students stu studying artificial intelligence. And not one of those students has raised a problem about someone of faith, and I'm perfectly open about what my day job is, teaching about ethics. And many of them have wanted to pursue extremely interesting discussions with me. They understand, as I think do the academics running the program, who seem to ask me back every year, they understand that the questions raised by their researches are of such magnitude that what tends to pass for ethics just won't do. Ethics is not a tick box exercise to make sure everybody's happy. All that's so inadequate that they realize, I think, that the great ethical traditions of the world, not only Christianity, need to be mined for the resource that they offer to questions that are hugely existential about what is it to be human. And another reason I'm not pessimistic is because the peculiar qualities of the Church of England have an attraction, strangely, to a good number of people who don't subscribe to the tenets of the Christian faith. A contemporary example would be the journalist Simon Jenkins, who's a passionate advocate of the importance of the parish church as a signifier of local identities. To go back into the 20th century, another example would be the author George Orwell, who professed no religious belief at all, but showed in much of his writing a warm and well-informed affection for the Church of England. Orwell was especially interesting because he wasn't just nostalgic for a time when 
the church might have been thought to be at the center of some mythical local community. In the 1930s and 40s, Orwell argued that the rise of totalitarianism and totalitarian regimes across Europe and the Soviet Union was made possible by the loss of popular belief in life after death. Without that belief in the ultimate justice of God, all perceived wrongs and humiliations had to be resolved in one's own lifetime. And that made people desperately vulnerable to manipulation and exploitation by populist demagogues. The problem, as Orwell saw it, was that belief in life after death was simply impossible for modern humanity. But because no one had found anything to put in its place, there was no way he could see to fend off the human lust for power and domination. Maybe he was too pessimistic. Because as long as there are people who understand and value the Church of England's social function, the possibility remains that they may come to belief in the tenets of the trad Christian tradition. And they can rediscover that belief in the transcendence of God, the love of Christ for us, and the reality of the Holy Spirit. Because we don't believe on the basis of rational propositions, but because we are exposed to something beyond ourselves that captivates our imaginations and our attention. It may just be, therefore, that the Church of England's role as social glue is part of the process of reclaiming the people for Christ. Now, this is absolutely not to substitute good works for the task of evangelization, but to recognize that people come to belief by many roots and classic evangelism is only one of them. As long as people who worry about social fragmentation continues to see the church's potential as a medium of unity in a fragmenting society, they are exposed to catching a faith that could replace the individualism, the short-termism, and the lust for power that characterizes our social and political existence. In that sense, the social, civil, and established roles of the church lead not away from, but towards its transcendent religious teaching. Now, much more could be said on this theme, and time's getting on. In fact, I've gone on too long. Much of what I've said is not a knockdown thesis, but an imaginative speculation about how Anglicanism's birth as something of an antidote to division and theologically sanctioned murder might be an inheritance that others can share and gain from. And in May next year, Charles III will be crowned. It remains to be seen how the religious content of that ceremony will be expressed, given that it is the Church of England acting in God's name which anoints the monarch. It will be an event of huge symbolic significance and therefore undoubtedly a potential source of conflict and friction. But the bigger question is surely about the reign that follows. The first and second Elizabeths presided over a nation experiencing huge change and provided a unifying focus which enabled the people to survive and flourish despite differences. Charles I squandered a lot of that distinctive Anglican inheritance, while Charles II helped to restore the tolerant and capacious ways of being the church.
that the C of E at its best has tried to perpetuate. You can only get so far with nominal determinism that people's names tell you what they're going to do. But much will turn on, an, on how our new king lives out his vocation so that the church of which he is governor can live out its vocation of being a church for all the people of his realm. Thank you. That was a wonderful lecture from Malcolm Brown. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, please consider rating this episode in your podcast app. This will really help other people to find it. And please do share it with friends who you think would enjoy it as well. I'd like to thank Malcolm for talking about how the Church of England can find a way to be a church for England. So interesting to hear someone at the heart of the Anglican Church reflecting in this way. I hope you enjoy listening to the other lectures in the series too. My name is Jenny Sinclair, founder and director of Together for the Common Good. I'd love it if you would explore our other work too, including our sister podcast, Leaving Egypt, with my good friend Alan Roxborough, where we explore what it means to be God's people in times of unravelling. You can find it where you're listening to this podcast right now, or you can join our community at leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. You can find our other work at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk. Thank you for listening. God bless and goodbye for now.